to get your attention. Are we good? <laughs> Sean, are we good? Good, good, good. Okay, sorry. Uh, if you're a Christian, there's not a time or a place in which uh, praising God, attributing praise to Him for who He is and what He's done isn't the appropriate thing to do. There's a passage in John 4 which Jesus said kind of startlingly uh, that God was seeking worshipers. That God was a spirit and he was seeking those who would worship him in spirit and truth. I want to talk about just very briefly that concept that God is a spirit. So forget the incarnation for a minute. Uh, The Trinity, the triune God, the God that is and always has been, is a spirit. So speaking of the Father, Jesus said God is spirit. He's spirit, so he's immaterial. He doesn't have a, a body. And he, we also say that He is everywhere. There's not a place that God, who is Spirit, isn't. He fills all places at all times. So God's a Spirit, and He fills the universe, the cosmos. And yet, one of the things that you see in Scripture is that even though God is Spirit, not material, and even though He fills all places at all times, He is particularly tied to locations and geography. God cares about geography. He cares about space. He cares about the space, the place you call home or I call home. And in Scripture, you see this over and over and over again from beginning to end that our spirit God who fills all places is intimately connected to particular places. This is by His doing. When Paul was in Athens, he said this in Acts 17, 26. He said, God made from one man, so from Adam, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined, and listen to the, listen to the division here, he determined their allotted periods. Friends, God's determined when nations rise and when nations fall. When empires rise and when they fall. God has already determined it. We look at it and we read the news to figure out what's going on. But God is the one writing the news. In fact, I think it was Ben Franklin said, if a sparrow can't fall to the ground, is it likely that a nation can rise when they were having troubles during the the, uh, Continental Congress? So God determines the periods, their time frame, and he determines the boundaries of their dwelling place. God establishes the boundaries of nations and empires. He takes responsibility for that. So the nations that are, their boundaries are the boundaries God has instituted. Think about this specifically in regard to Abraham, excuse me, and his descendants, the Jewish people. So God chooses Abraham and he tells him, I want you to leave the place you're at. You're going to go to a place that I will show you. And and he tells him, I'm going to give you this land. And guys, in Genesis 12 through 17 alone, five times, God tells Abraham, I'm giving you this land, you and your descendants, from the great river of the Euphrates down to the river of Egypt, all the land of the Canaanites. It's all yours and it's your descendants. Five times. Within the land of promise, God determined that Jerusalem would be uniquely his holy city, the capital of that nation. We'll be in a psalm this morning that's speaking specifically to that topic. Though God is spirit and he's omnipresent, he's keenly interested in place or in locations or in geography. And there's no place that you see that more fully developed than in the land of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. God's not uh, concerned merely with who, but with where. Psalm 87 this morning, you can turn there if you want now. It's short, very short. It celebrates the city of Zion celebrates the city of Jerusalem, a very, very unique place in God's plans. I think it's in fact difficult for us uh, to consider this. So maybe if, if you tell yourself, and this will come up in, maybe in spades in a little bit, as we talk about Jerusalem this morning, uh, think of it as your hometown. This doesn't even do it justice. We live in a time and a place in which we move all the time and we don't give it a thought. But if you were a Jew in Israel, your people lived on a particular plot of land. 
in a particular nation with a particular capital. Everything was related to place in a way that we have no reference for. So I can move to a new city, I can take a new job, I can change church. We're a mobile, hyper-mobile society. So the way that God speaks about Jerusalem and the way the Jews love Jerusalem is something that I think for us is a foreign concept and something that we need to learn. And I think this one will help us do so this morning. Now the city goes by various names. So the psalm will say Mount Zion. So it's called Mount Zion. It's called Zion. It's called Jebus. It's called Salem. It's called Jerusalem. It's called the city of God. It goes by a lot of different names, all for the same place. Zion is one of the most frequent, used 154 times in the Old Testament. That means a signpost or a monument. Something significant, it sticks out. Jerusalem means the city or the foundation of peace, which as we'll see and we'll talk about this, the city of peace has known very, very little peace in history. That's used 660 times in the Old Testament. And the city is holy. The psalm will say it's holy. It's holy because it's uniquely God's own city. It's His possession. That's what he calls it. Alan Ross's summary says this, After extolling the glorious city of Zion, the psalmist reveals how people from other nations are gathered to her as children and how those who dwell there celebrate being in the city of God. So if you've got your Bibles, your apps open, the introductory line there is like others we've already gone through. It's a psalm of the sons of Korah. So it's written by or for that same group, those descendants of Korah. And it's a song. This was written to be sung as the people of God collected together. Uh, We'll take this in sections as we usually do. Look at verses 1 through 3 to start. On the holy mount stands the city, he, and he here is God, he, God, founded the Lord, and that's God's proper covenant name, Yahweh or Jehovah. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Jacob would stand for the nation of Israel. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. And then Selah, pause or stop, consider what's being said. Look at verse 1. It says God claims to be the founder of the city of Jerusalem, of Zion. Scripture doesn't record this. We don't know in human history who laid the foundations. Who looked at that hill initially and said, we're going to live there. We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. We don't know who the first inhabitants were. But God says ultimately, it's my city and I claim to be the founder of the city. The city's here because I wanted it here. God uniquely claims it as the founder. He also says in verse 2, not only does he claim it, but he said he loves the city. God doesn't speak in this language about any place else, that he loves Jerusalem uniquely. When it says the gates of Zion, that's a way of saying the city of Jerusalem. If I talked about the, what, the boundaries of, speak, I'm not sure what a good, uh, a good comparison would be, maybe we don't have one, but... To say the gates of the city is to indicate the whole city. God said he loves the city of Jerusalem when he says the gates of Zion. Jerusalem is uniquely claimed and loved by God. Listen, and when we've gone through Psalms in this series, we've tried to sort of get a sense of the variety of themes and topics Psalms covers. And one of the topics that's common in Psalms are songs about the city of Jerusalem. Listen to this from Psalm 48 is probably perhaps the best known along this line. It says, uh, verse 1 and 2, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain. And, And just notice the way it's possessed by God. It's the city that belongs to our God. It's God's holy mountain. It's beautiful in elevation. It's the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king there is not David or Solomon, it's God. It's God's city. He is its king. Or this is Psalm 132, verse 13. The Lord, Yahweh Jehovah, has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. And this is what God says of Jerusalem. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell 
for I have desired it. Again, language that's spoken of no other place on earth save that city. Now guys, I, I don't mean to abuse you, and I'm going to keep an eye on my clock. Okay. Uh, we're gonna, this is a short history lesson. If I say to you, Jerusalem, I have no idea what that conjures up in your mind. So as we go through a short history lesson, this is what I want you to do in the ways you can. When we talk about Jerusalem, you say to yourself, that's my hometown, okay? Jerusalem is my city. That's, that's the place I call home so that it's personal, okay? Because otherwise it sounds just like a history lesson. It's not personal, it's not significant, and you don't care about it. So we want to say, think of it this way, Jerusalem is my city. It's my city because it's God's city. And, and so I'm thinking about it as the place that I come from. And I'm thinking about its history as the history of the place I call home. Okay, so this is where we're going. And uh, I need to make sure, sorry. I've timed this so I could go on for a long time and, I, and I'm going to try not to. I won't. <clears throat> we'll have a baptism here in a couple of weeks. When we get baptized, someone stands up and they give their testimony. And usually that means something like this. This is where I was. This is my past. This is my present. And if they go on for a little bit, maybe these are my aspirations going forward. But a testimony is a story at least about my past and my present. And ideally a little bit about where God's taking me in the future. Jerusalem has a testimony. It has a story. It has its own unique history. And so I just want to walk through a little bit of what that looks like on the city God says He's the founder of. Her story is going on today and her future in both terrible war and in great deliverances is spoken of uniquely in God's Word. So Jerusalem is an old city and by any standards. So the archaeologists say that Jerusalem existed before 4000 BC, just based on the way archaeologists can put time frames together. It's an old, old city. Egypt, Egyptian chronicles talk about the city of Jerusalem before 2000 BC. Been around a long time. And if you get into Genesis 14, Jerusalem comes up in a really significant way because that's the story where Abraham is coming back from having ransomed, redeemed Lot in a battle. Lot and God and Lot's things and the other people along with him. And when they're coming back in that land of promise, they're coming by the city of Salem. You know, we, we um, anglicized, but it would be Shalom. It would be the city of Shalom, the city of peace. And who does Abraham run into in the city of peace? God's city, the city of peace, the one he founded. Who does he run into? He runs into this enigmatic character called Melchizedek. Melchizedek's name means king, Melech, of righteousness. And he's also called the priest of God Most High. So you've got a king who's also a priest in the city of peace. Does this sound like it refers to anybody else? If you read Hebrews in the New Testament, you'll see that Jesus combines what would never have been combined in the Old Covenant. He combines the role of priest and king in the same person. And you don't see that. You could not have that under the Mosaic Law. So here's Melchizedek, this picture. And where does he call home? It's the city of Salem, which we call Jerusalem. 2000 B.C., the life of Abraham. Geographically, by the way, if you have a study Bible or on your apps, you could pull this up. If I was doing this right, I'd have a, I would have a PowerPoint with lots and lots of pictures. So sorry about that. So use your imagination or your maps. Uh, Jerusalem's located in the central mountains of Israel and kind of north to south, sort of the center of Jerusalem as well. It sits on two hills. You know, they call these mountains. And if we go to the Rockies, we say, no, these are not, not mountains. These are hills. It sits at about 2,500 feet above sea level. Uh, but Mount uh, Moriah on the west, sort of the, if you can call it, the newer part of the city is Mount Moriah. And Mount Zion would be the older part of the city, it would be on the east. And historically, um, there were three valleys that sort of sculpted the hill. So the Kidron Valley is still there on the east side. If you look at your map, it's on the right. And that ends the city of Jerusalem. You go down to the Kidron Valley, up to the Mount of Olives. 
On the west side, sort of west, um, I think I've got this wrong. If this is in your notes, I think I said southeast. On the western and the southwestern portion of the city, uh, that's the Valley of Hinnom, the Hinnom Valley. That ends the city there, too. Historically, there was also what's called the Central Valley that went north to south, right through the middle of the city. And over time, that valley, and it was quite deep, got filled in with earth and rubble so that if you went from the Western Wailing Wall in Jerusalem today, uh, you'd go down, I don't know, 90 to 100 feet to what used to be the valley. All of that was built up, at least so the Temple Mount could be fabricated and it would have adequate support around it. We know it became a Jebusite, a Canaanite city. We know by the time uh, the Israelites come into the land of promise, Judges 1.8 tells us that the Jews defeated the city, they burned the city sometime after 1400 B.C. So you got Abraham 2000 B.C. and Melchizedek. Later we know after the Jews have come into the land of promise, it's destroyed and burned. So let's just say 1300 B.C. King David comes along about 1000 B.C. He conquers the city and he makes it his capital. So under King David, Jerusalem, Jebus, Salem becomes his capital. And then really for the first time, David's capital becomes the, we could say the formal residence of God because you remember David moves the Ark of the Covenant into his capital city, Jerusalem. And so for the first time, that's where God's proper, if you will, presence is located in the city of Jerusalem, there by David. That would be, just say 1000 B.C., you remember David's son Solomon builds the temple. And guys, this was, this was the marvel of the ancient world. Solomon builds up the temple mount, makes a flat, a flat area. And then he builds this monumental structure that lasts for about 400 years. And this would have rivaled any of the pyramids in Egypt. It, it, think of a country bumpkin who farms in northern Israel and he comes to Jerusalem. <clears throat> This would have been staggering, the Temple Mount there built by Solomon in Jerusalem. It lasts for about 400 years. And then in 586 B.C., God had warned the Jews for some time. You see this especially in the prophetic book of uh, Jeremiah. He told them, guys, turn back from your recalcitrance, from your idolatry, or I'm bringing judgment. And eventually he does. And in 586, the city is just overturned. It's a rubble pile. The temple is absolutely destroyed and the Jews are taken captive to Babylon as God said he would. Now they're not there that long. So 586 in 539, the Babylonians are overturned by the Persians and the Persians had a different policy than the Babylonians. And so they told the Jews, we're going to give you permission to go back to your capital and rebuild your temple. And so in 538, the Jews, some of the Jews that had gone to Babylon, they went back and they rebuilt the temple. And that took, there was a little bit of a delay in it, but it took about 20 years to rebuild the temple. And then along the line, remember that the temple is being built within a rubble heap. The city had been absolutely overthrown. So until about 445 BC, Jews are coming back to Jerusalem and Nehemiah is in that last group. They rebuild the city eventually and they rebuild the city wall. The city remained under Persian rule. All that happened with the Persians being the ones they were paying taxes to. So they're there, they're worshiping God in Jerusalem and in Israel again, but they're doing so as vassals to Persia. That went right into the 300s. And then, do you remember who the, the world changer was in the 300s that came along? You know, Alexander the Great. By the way, you can read this in Daniel's book. He's seen as a goat that flies over the surface of the earth, demolishing the Persian Empire. So Alexander comes along and nobody can stop him. And for 10 years, you know, he, he takes over every place he's gone and he dies suddenly. And he has four generals and they divide up his empire. And two of those generals found empires, Lebanon, Syria, the Seleucids, and Ptolemy takes Egypt. And guess who's stuck in between these two warring factions? Israel and Jerusalem. And so in this time period, they're sort of the buffer zone. It's either Egypt 
or it's the Syrians coming down to lay waste Jerusalem and Israel. I don't want to get too much into this. There's some very interesting history. Daniel brings this up. But Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, one of the kings from Syria, went into the temple because the temple was rebuilt. He goes into the temple and, and said he was God. And so Antiochus Epiphanes is God with us. He called himself God present and he stood in the Jewish temple and said as much. So it's a buffer zone for a while. And that happens until about one, we'll just say 160 B.C. And a family group of priests in Israel rise up. And guys, in this period, the Syrians were ruling Israel and Jerusalem. And they said, you can't circumcise your boys. You can't, you can't keep covenant with Yahweh. You can't have your scriptures. You can't read them. You can't teach them. And it was under that kind of oppression that the Maccabee family rose up. And this was entirely unexpected. This, this was a, just a group of priests, a family group of priests. They rose up, they led a rebellion, and they actually defeated the Syrians. And so when you talk about the Feast of Hanukkah or the Feast of Lights, it comes from the Jews reclaiming the desecrated temple, filling the oil in the lamps there. They said there's not enough oil to last, but the oil miraculously lasted when they cleansed the temple. That's the Feast of Hanukkah. That was under the Maccabees. They were Israel was almost a uh, hundred years of being their own independent nation again from about 140 to 63 B.C. How are we doing on your hometown? On the place you call home? Are we still here? Okay. Rome ruled Jerusalem when Israel was made a vassal state again when Pompey conquered it in 63 B.C. So you know, their, their history in the Middle East, it's always who's pushing somebody out, who's, who's warring, who's winning, who's losing. The Romans made Herod the Great the king of Israel in 40 B.C. And Herod was this murderous, uh, really insane, irrational individual. You read, his, it's almost hard to, to paint him too negatively, but this is what he was masterfully. He was a builder. Uh, he was the builder of likes. Uh, very few rulers in the Middle East have seen. Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast was his building. But the other thing he did was he rebuilt the second temple. If you remember from Zechariah's day, when the Jews rebuilt the temple, so they knew some of them knew Solomon's temple. They were old enough, they remembered. And when they laid the new temple, maybe that's in Ezra, I'm going to forget the location. It says some were rejoicing loudly and others were weeping. They weren't weeping because God's temple was going to be erected again. They, they wept because they knew what Solomon's looked like and they knew this is no Solomon's temple. But when Herod remodeled that temple, it was glorious again, if not to the stature of Solomon's pretty close. And that was the temple Jesus knew. So the second temple remodeled and Herod extended. You can see this on the eastern wall of the Temple Mount. You can see where Herod extended that. That was the temple that Jesus walked in as a boy. It was the temple he taught in was the refurbished second temple of Herod. Jesus, you know, mourned Jerusalem later in his ministry. This is Matthew 23 and Luke 13, because he said Jerusalem was the city that stoned its prophets and would, of course, eventually say to him, you're, you're not the one we're looking for, would reject Jesus as well. Jesus was condemned in Jerusalem. He was crucified outside its city walls, where, of course, he rose as well. Jerusalem is the birthplace of the church after Jesus' resurrection. And then on Pentecost Sunday, the Holy Spirit was given, as Jesus said it would be. The city was destroyed again. You know, the Jews have never liked anybody over them, right? They say, we're God's people, we should rule ourselves. And so there was a rebellion, and it started before 70 AD. But Titus finished what his father began. They destroyed, you can still see this, by the way. You can see where the 10th Legion was outside. They can see the, the markings. They created a wall around the city of Jerusalem, a second wall, so the Jews couldn't escape. You can read Josephus on what the destruction of Jerusalem looked like in 70 AD. But again, just like the Babylonians, the Romans said, we've had enough. They tore down the temple, they burned it, and they, they, just, they left a rubble field where the city of Jerusalem had been. 
Um, Jerusalem, matter of fact, sorry, uh, one of my daughters gave me a great uh, archaeology book on Jerusalem just recently. The city's overthrown, but Jews keep wanting to come back, and there's another revolt in 135 AD, Bar Kokhba. And so the Romans said, we've had enough of this. So they rebuild a Roman city on the site of Jerusalem. And they forbid Christians and Jews from coming into that city. And they build their own idol houses of worship over the Christian sites. Like the, the cave that was assumed to be Jesus' burial place, they put a Roman idol temple there. This is what they did. So for a period of time, Christians and Jews, it was illegal to be in the streets of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was then conquered in the 600s by the new religion of Islam. And the Temple Mount area where the two temples to Yahweh had been located was now used to build a Muslim mosque. And that's the Dome of the Rock. It's there to this day. It was built in the 600s. It's an old, old structure. In 705 AD, Al-Aqsa Mosque was built also on the south end of the Temple Mount. <clears throat> Excuse me, a little point on the, the Dome of the Rock, you can read a number of uh, well-attested authors of the archaeology of Jerusalem who will give you different uh, vantages, different points of view on where the temple in fact stood. And so there's not complete unity on the thought of where it stood. Lane Rittmeyer is one of the, the best, best informed and longest living of the archaeologists regarding the city of Jerusalem. This is his take. You can see images of this online. The Dome of the Rock. So that's, it's got a name like that for a reason. If you look right under the dome, in the center, there's a little wall that goes around. And in the middle of that little retaining wall, there are some carpets. But in the very middle, there's just bare rock. It's just a, a bare piece of the mountainside. So it's just rock. It's virgin rock. And in that virgin rock, there's a small corner that's been excised flat. And Lane Rittmeyer believes that's actually where the Ark of the Covenant sat in Solomon's temple, that it was in that very location. So the Muslims came in and built, just like the Romans had, they said this is where God's temple was. And there was nothing there when they came in and built but rubbish. It was a rubbish pile on the Temple Mount at that time. And so that has stood there ever since. As you know, the city traded hands in bloody battles between European crusaders and Middle Eastern Muslims starting from about 1095 into the 1400s. And guys, if you read the stories on this too, the city of peace was anything but. That literally, the Temple Mount was covered in blood and bodies during the Crusader Wars. And this went both ways. Massive, we think 1400 today, uh, Hamas against, Jerusalem, or against Israel is a bad deal, and it was. But the atrocities in both directions, crusaders and Muslims in this, this several hundred year period, the numbers have no comparison to that. They filled the Temple Mount with corpses in more than one of those assaults. So the city of peace hasn't enjoyed much of that. Uh, that by the way, that was the day of Saladin, Salah Adin. The, the Muslim conqueror took Jerusalem back. These were the days of Richard the Lionheart. So if you think of a history, that, that's where they were. That's when that was going on. Jews returned in trickles to Jerusalem and the Holy Land over the years. And guys, generally, the Muslims were running Jerusalem and Christians could come and there was general peace. Broadly, there was general peace for those years. The Muslims ran it, but they tolerated the Christians and the Jews there as well. That was true until World War I ended. In 1917, the Ottoman Empire ended and their, their hold of Jerusalem and Israel ended and the British ran it from that point until 1948 when after almost 2,000 years, the nation of Israel that Rome had displaced had a refounding, uh, March, or May 14, 1948. At that point, the Jews only had the western portion of the city of Jerusalem. And then in the war of 1967, they regained the rest of the city of Jerusalem from Jordan. Even though Israel controls all that area, 
under their authority, the Muslim, it's called a waqf, W-A-Q-F, they actually run the Temple Mount. And that's why Christians and Jews, you can, with supervision and under pretty strict guidelines only, you can walk that area today, but it's run by Muslims. They're very careful about what non-Muslims do on that Temple Mount. The city of peace has known almost nothing but war for most of its history. And Scripture is clear that Jerusalem will be a battleground in the future when the armies of the world who oppose God in Christ do so around Jerusalem. King Jesus returns from heaven, landing on the Mount of Olives and delivering the city from attacking armies. And I believe your study sheet has several references related to that. Jerusalem will be the center of King Jesus' earthly reign and the place to which the nations of the world will send their ambassadors. This is Zechariah 2. This hasn't happened, by the way. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, I will dwell in your midst, declares Yahweh. So Yahweh says, I'm going to live in Jerusalem. Many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his position, his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. So there's a day in which the city of Jerusalem that exists on the earth today becomes God's specific city again, the place he calls his own. Like us, beyond that, Jerusalem will have a future rebirth, eventually reborn as the new Jerusalem. And that's why I say think of it as your home because it's our heavenly home. New Jerusalem is your eternal dwelling place. New Jerusalem, Revelation 3 and 21. Let me ask you this. Is it any wonder that in the cosmic battle between heaven and hell, between Christ and Satan, that the city of God has been the focal point of so much violence and hatred, just as is true today? Just as is true today. God says of the city, the city of God, glorious things are spoken of you. We don't see that, not not at least lived out right now. Jerusalem is the only city on earth God speaks of in this way. It doesn't matter how big they are or how wealthy they are. London, Paris, New York, L.A., Beijing, Singapore. God doesn't speak this way of any other city on the earth except Jerusalem. It was the center of worship for God's people, the Jews. And it will yet be the place from which God will be known throughout the earth. Guys, this, this is just the tip of the iceberg on God's promises, especially in the prophetic scriptures, about what's coming for Israel and for Jerusalem. Now, here's a question for you, though, about your hometown. What about Jerusalem today? So it's there. The Jews are in the land of promise, and the city is there, and it's their capital today. And we can say this, at least. God has reestablished Israel in the land, and Jerusalem is that reborn nation's capital. But it is not today the center of God's presence on earth nor is it the place from which God is uniquely worshipped. Jerusalem still uh, figures big in God's plans, but it's not the place that He dwells today, is it? And so this is a theme that we've covered. When you say, we look at that Old Testament text, how do you apply it to us today? We've said repeatedly, God's dwelling place on earth today, it's not... It's not the geography of Jerusalem. In fact, it's not the geography specifically of any given place. It's the church of Jesus Christ. We've said this. It's, it's, it's true in spades. You'll see it in 1 Corinthians 3 especially. That Christians are individually the temple of God. And the church corporate is the dwelling place of God on earth. So when we're thinking of the Jews' affection for Jerusalem singularly... The application for us is the Christian's affection for the church specifically. And hopefully that gets lived out for any Christian in their local church. Otherwise, it's just a nice thought, but there's no practical element to it if we don't actually walk that out where we call home in our local church. God loves the church. So Psalm 87 said, Jerusalem is holy to God and he loves it. What does God say about the church? God says he loves the church and it's holy. He says the same thing about the church that he did about Jerusalem. This is Ephesians 5. 
Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her. That's might make her holy. He cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Why? That he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, just like Jerusalem of old, that she might be holy without blemish. That God says the same things about the church that he had spoken about the city of Jerusalem. Uniquely God's loved by him, his possession. If the city of Jerusalem has experienced relentless war because it is loved by God and remains integral to his plans for the earth, shouldn't we expect opposition, persecution, and the devil's hatred as the people in place God now loves and is working in and through? The Jewish expectation in Jerusalem was God's blessing and favor, glory, and honor. But what did Jesus promise his followers? Persecution. Persecution. Psalm 122.6 says this of Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Take that thought and apply it to the church. Pray for the peace of the church. And that's exactly what you see from Paul in 1 Timothy 2. Pray for kings and those in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness. It's the same thought. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of the church. As individual temples of God, as members of a local church, where is it that God has placed us geographically, socially, and relationally? God tied himself to a piece of geography, a piece of real estate, the city of Jerusalem. And he still works through place for us. So if God's put us in a particular place at a particular time, don't be too much in a hurry to leave the place God has you. Again, we're hypermobile. We don't think in these terms. But biblically, God uses us specifically in specific times in specific places. Don't be in a hurry to leave until you know God wants you to. <clears throat> so with that background, past testimony, past, a little bit of present, and some in the future, uh, move on to verses 4 through 6. These verses, by the way, they get a variety of interpretive Understanding the, the language is a little ambiguous. It's hard to know sometimes who's talking or who's being referred to. Verse 4, Among those who know me, so God is speaking, among those who know me, I mention Rahab, that's Egypt, and Babylon, these two world powers. I mention Rahab, Egypt, and I mention Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre, that's along the Mediterranean coast, with Cush down in Africa, this one was born there, they say. So people in disparate countries, non-Jewish locations around the world, say this one was born there. Verse 5, And of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born in her. For the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord records as He registers the people, think of a census being taken, this one was born there. Say law, stopped, consider, think again. So in verse 4, God speaks of foreigners in a variety of lands who have come to believe in Yahweh. They have salvation. That phrase, those who know me. You remember to know was to be in relationship. So we're referring to Gentiles who have come to faith in Israel's God, those who know me. And then speaking of their own salvation, they say they were born again. This is so to speak language as if they were a native born son or daughter of Jerusalem. Though I was born in Egypt, for example, I now say I was born there in Jerusalem or I was born again or I'm a new person. And now I identify not with the, the origin, my homeland of origin, but with Jerusalem, with God's city. Verses five through six, <clears throat> excuse me moves up to Jerusalem itself. And it's if God takes a census of all who are there and he's counting and he's recording. And as he registers, no matter where they come from, he says of each one, this one was born in Zion. They're all mine. No matter where they started, they're all mine today. That sounds a little bit like the church, doesn't it? That from every tribe and nation and tongue and kindred, God is calling people to himself. Matter of fact, Kent read this on the opening. Genesis, or excuse me, Galatians 3. 
There's no longer Jew or Gentile, uh, male or female, barbarian, Scythian, whatever, but they're one in Christ. All those Ephesians 2 and 3 talks about this. The dividing element that was the law, it's gone, and there's one new man. That's the same thought for us today. If you were at a Jewish feast, and remember Jews, and what we call God-fearing Gentiles from all over the realm, they would come to celebrate the feast in Jerusalem. So if I'm a Jew, no matter where I hailed from in the land of Israel, it's as if I go to Jerusalem to worship and I say, Jerusalem is my hometown. Jerusalem is really the place I call home because it's God's home. But if I'm a God-fearing Gentile and I go for the feast as well, I'm saying effectively the same thing. I've come from Egypt or Babylon. I've come from the the, uh, Palestinian cities along the coast. And when I get to Jerusalem, I say the same thing the native-born Jews do. I say, Jerusalem, that's my hometown. That it's the place I call home. You know, if you, uh, during days of immigration, uh, immigrants, especially to America, because uh, God shed His grace on thee, that's really, really true. And so immigrants would come and they wanted to be identified right away, not as the Irish or the French or the, they wanted to say, I'm an American. Well, that's the thought here. I've got a new beginning. I've got a new life. I have a relationship with Yahweh. And it's as if I say, God's city, that's my hometown. God's city is my hometown. The place God called his unique home on earth, his chosen capital, is the place faithful followers of the Lord long to be. They loved Jerusalem because God loved Jerusalem. Jerusalem reflected their new birth relationship with God. As we pointed out in earlier Psalms as well, we should have something of that same affection and identification with Christ's church. I think um, on the affections here, sorry, I've got my scribbled notes here. Um, thinking about Jerusalem, this, this comes up again. Um, do I say with them, uh, I'm born there? Do I have a new birth? And one of the ways, one of the things that accompanies new, accompanies new spiritual birth is a new set of affections. Uh, the reformers talked about affections of the heart a lot. Uh, I have certain passions and loves before faith in Christ. And, and I have this new birth through faith in Christ and I find that I have a new set of affections. Well, the new set of affections being communicated in this song are all about that place that God called home. We should have a new set of affections as those who've trusted Christ. For the church, to be sure, God's dwelling place on the earth, but also just for the things that are God's, do we have a new set of affections? The affections, guys, they're tells on the state of our heart. What has our heart? That's what has our affections. Galatians 4.26 says, Jerusalem above, now this isn't Jerusalem on the earth, but hold that thought, Jerusalem above, she is our mother. Jerusalem above, she is our hometown. The new Jerusalem, we'll see this when we wind down. Uh, The worshipers, look at verse 7 on the short song. This is the conclusion. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Uh, Imagine for the Jews, you know, in a dry area, a spring was a representation of life. The spring was life. And they say, all my joys, all the, the, the essence of my vitality, my affections, all the things I count blessing, it's all tied to Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem is my God's home, and so it's my home. It's the place that my affections are set. So they say it's their deepest joy, it's their greatest inspiration. To be in Jerusalem with others worshiping God is life at its best. Psalm 137 is a captivity song. I think maybe we'll look at this later, but the Jews are in Babylon and they're being mocked on one hand. But this is what they say too. If I forget you, so they're not in Jerusalem at the moment, they're in Babylon as captives. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, God's house, my desire, my affections set on God and where God's at. In fact, Jews throughout the diaspora, the the scattering of the Jews from the land of promise across the earth, 
You'd see this in movies sometimes, probably read it in books. What would they say at weddings and other ceremonies? They would say routinely, next year in Jerusalem, because they didn't own Jerusalem through millennia. I think as Christians in the church age, there are at least three applications that we can readily make regarding this song. So the first is this. The city of God, like the temple of God on earth, is the church of Jesus Christ on the earth today. It's where followers of Jesus gather together in his name, corporately worship in song through scripture, baptizing new believers, remembering Jesus in the breaking of bread and the cup of the new covenant to worship him, calling the church our home, our great delight and the center of our joy. And guys, I know this is a challenge. I know it's a challenge. Imagine Jesus going to the temple that an Edomite rebuilt. King Herod wasn't a Jew. He was despised Edomite. He's the one that rebuilt the temple Jesus called my father's house. And his father's house is run by non-believing Sadducees who are in religion for a buck. And what does he do? He goes to the temple and he worships at the temple and he calls it God's house. I think we should be willing to put up with a lot more than we usually are in the local church with people that we disagree with or we don't think they're the best. Jesus did at that place in that way. Christians should have thicker skin. We should have a greater sense of loyalty to the church because that's exactly what Jesus had for his father's house, even though the glories that were above him in that structure were built by a descendant of Esau. And even though it was run by calculating, God-rejecting religious hypocrites and leaders, we should have a thicker skin in being able to call the church of the living God our home and the place we have affections for because it's God's home. And because God loves it, therefore we love it. That's one. The second is this. Uh, God's plans for the physical city of Jerusalem will yet be fulfilled as will his plan of redemption for the people of Israel when Jesus, the Deliverer, comes to Zion, Jerusalem, banishes ungodliness from Jacob, and all Israel will be saved. That's from Romans 11, 26 and 27. Listen to this from Isaiah 62. For Zion's sake, Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nation shall see your righteousness, Jerusalem, and all the kings of the earth your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, of Yahweh, of Jehovah. You'll be a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You'll no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her. That's God speaking of Jerusalem. My delight is in her and your land will be called married for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God Rejoice over you. Friends, this has not happened. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, you who pray, take no rest, give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Friends, to be prayerfully supportive of Israel today is to believe that God will keep his promises and yet reclaim the physical descendants of Abraham, the land of Israel, and the city of Jerusalem. If you say, why do the Muslims hate the Jews in this extreme way, and why are they not willing to give the Jews a little piece of real estate? It's because the Jews are part of God's program on the earth. And God is going to keep the promises he made to the physical descendants of Abraham. The city that stoned God's prophets and crucified her king and God becomes God's eternal dwelling place. 
Do you know that nothing from this earth can go unchanged into eternity? If you don't have a new birth, you don't spend eternity in heaven. Jesus told Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Friends, the city of Jerusalem is going to have a new birth. And it's going to be called New Jerusalem. Just as we have a new birth, the city of Jerusalem will have a new birth. And that's your eternal home, the new Jerusalem. So it, Jerusalem on the earth today doesn't look like the Jerusalem we're going to inhabit. It's transformed from that rocky place in Israel today. It's going to be transformed into the glories that are spoken of in Revelation. But that's no different than you and me. That the glory that you and I will possess in the future has almost no resemblance to our humanity today. It's the same thing. That everything connected with this earth as it is, guys, is going to end. It's going to be burned up. You've got to have a rebirth. And Jerusalem itself will have a rebirth. Jerusalem is our future home. It's our city. It's the eternal dwelling place of God. Hebrews 12.22 says, We have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And let me close with this. This is Revelation 21. How am I doing on time? I'm just a little over. Not too bad. Revelation 21 says this, John the Apostle writing, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and first earth passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city. Now that's what God called Psalm 87 calls Jerusalem the holy city. I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Amen. God, my, yeah, my, uh, my greatest hope for all of us is that in truth we say Jerusalem above the new Jerusalem, that's my hometown. That's the place I was born. That's the place I call home. That's my hope for all of us. Well, if you'll rise, we'll read another section to close. Sorry, from.